of your eye. Huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. So, exciting first movie for season two, Visitations. Yes, yes. Visitations. Today's uh, movie visitation theme is a surprise visit. Ah, yes. Uh, And, you know, like we like to do, we start off light uh, with some humor, uh, just like we did with the first one the last time. (laughs) Exactly. This will be the uh, heaviest film of the uh, season in my opinion. Okay. So let's uh, see what it's all about. The audition. Yes. We watched audition. It is a movie uh, from 1999, a Japanese film based on a 1997 novel by Ryu Murakami. He's an award-winning Japanese author. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, This is a movie that's hard to classify. um, (laughs) Yeah. Because it hits this cusp. Um, there's this, this is the first Asian film we're going to be talking that we've had on the series. Uh, it's Japanese directed by, uh, Takashi Miike. Um, Did you practice saying that enough? I, I don't think so. Cause it's Miike, but it's fine. Um, he's pretty famous. He did 13 assassins, um, Izo. Uh, he did one of the movies in Three Extremes, One Missed Call, uh, Ichi the Killer, Gozu. He has 111 different films to his name. Wow. Prolific. He is a member of the Nikkei. Uh, he was born in Osaka. Uh, the Nikkei are um, Japanese citizens who lived in foreign countries. Um, now, Osaka is not a foreign country, but his father. His grandfather was in China and Korea. He was a Japanese citizen in China and Korea, and his father was born in Korea. The only reason that I bring this up is from um, my experience, Korean films, uh, Korean horror films have a very specific flavor to them, and that's that they, they wander. And... That's not a bad thing, but you'll be watching it and suddenly you're in a horror movie and then all of a sudden you're in a comedy and then all of a sudden you're in a romance and then all of a sudden you're back to a horror movie again. Um, You can see this in The Host or uh, Hashtag Alive or Parasite, right? Uh, You know, the big Oscar award winner. Uh, It was hard to to shoehorn that into something and audition very much has that flavor. I can see that. Definitely. It also has Japanese film elements, which makes sense because Miike was born in Japan, lived in Japan. Uh, So some of the things that you'll see in Japanese movies, especially the big one that shows up here is they'll play with time in Japanese horror movies. Uh, So, you will have things that are not necessarily happening 
in the correct order, or you'll have things that are happening in the correct order. And then all of a sudden they'll interject something from someone else's point of view that happened in the past right there. And you'll be like, what just happened? It, it gets to the extreme that I, I recall watching one of uh, the Juwan films where you had a girl interacting with another girl who appeared earlier in the film, but whose story didn't come until later. And they oh, were geez. interacting across timelines at one specific point in time in the house. And you're like, wait a second. <laughs> it's not uncommon in Japanese film. Okay. Well, if nothing else, uh, I mean, one of my comments was this definitely doesn't feel like an American film. It definitely has a different feel to it. Uh, you know, if you're going to the new Halloween movie, you like Friday the 13th and Texas Chainsaw, uh, you know, if, if you're going for that type of stuff, this has elements of that, but it's really not like those at all. Just Absolutely. <laughs> it, it's two hours long for starters. Uh, and I have a note on here, you know, um, we like to think about who would like to see this movie. Patient people would like to yeah. watch this movie. You have to be yeah. very, very patient. It, it, it's, and I, one of the other things I said, it's one of the slowest burns I've ever seen in a movie. Even when some of that time stuff starts happening, you wonder what's going on. It, it has those psychological elements. Is this real life or is he dreaming it, imagining it? And they give all those little buildups that you could say, well, he just had a nightmare based on everything they were talking about, or is it real? So it's definitely that type of thing. Yeah, it, it really is for probably three quarters of the movie. It's, it's like a rom-com. It's Almost, a romance. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's not even that funny. That's the problem. <laughs> right. And I think that's one of the reasons why I appreciate it so much is because it has this like whole kind of sappy romantic feeling. And so when the horror comes in, it's like getting hit in the face with a 90 pound Marlin. I mean, just bam. Right. All of a sudden I, you're like, what's she doing? I, 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 I would say not necessarily a comedy, but definitely a romance. Again, for an hour and a half of the movie, it's kind of a romance, a Japanese flavored romance. Uh, so it's a little different than you see, you know, American movies. Uh, but then you start getting that weird twisted psychological stuff. Is it really happening or is it not? And, and then it goes off the rails at the end. So <laughs> yep. just wait, it's yeah. coming folks. And it's not, um, Miike has directed everything from like uh, musicals and kid shows to like mainstream horror. <laughs> as um, long as he doesn't confuse this with the kid shows when he's editing and yeah. sends those off, that, that could be a problem. Like One Missed Call is a very standard horror film, right? I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's worth a watch, but it just feels like your standard, I'm going to take my date out to see a horror movie kind of film. But he also directed Ichi the Killer, which is outright banned in like three countries. Wow. So he spreads the gamut about, you know, what he what he shows in his films. And that's um, cool. Yeah. The film stars uh Ryo Ishibashi, and I I just want to apologize up front to any Japanese individuals who might be watching this. 
I'm slaughtering your language and you have my sincerest apologies about that. You've been to France, not Japan. That's true. Uh, Ryo Ishibashi uh, plays uh, Shigaharu Aoyama. He has been in several films, uh, 79 titles, uh, including Suicide Club, The Grudge, The Grudge 2, uh, War, mostly Japanese films, some television. Um, but The Grudge, those were, those were, that was the American remake of the Japanese version. So. Right, all three, four versions, <laughs> reboots or whatever they've done. Yeah. Ihishiina plays Asami Yamazaki. She's been in uh, 19 other films, mostly films, some television. She, um, this was like her thing. She was a model before this this show, and so this is like her big debut film. Um, wow. So what was your first film like? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. And and guess what she's been playing ever since? Slasher, killer, scary. murderous, yeah. psychotic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poor thing. Uh, Tetsu Sawaki plays Shigehiko Eyama. He's been in 13 other credits. This is uh, Shigaharu's son. Uh, mostly films, some TV. Uh, he actually stars with Sheena in a movie called Harmful Insect, which is actually not a horror film. With, with a name like Harmful Insect, you would think. Yeah, it's... it's uh, I'm trying to... It, it seemed like a, a psychological kind of thing. A psychological study into... We're not here to talk about that, but oh, I haven't well, seen okay. it. That's a bonus uh, th- episode. Yes. Audition was nominated for nine awards, and it won four of them. Uh, it's just under two hours long. It had a budget of $250,000. It grossed 131000 in the U.S. and Canada and 360000 worldwide. So the success, yeah, not a big success as far as money goes. Critically, though, uh, the movie's seen as a masterpiece by Quentin Tarantino. Rob Zombie calls it genuinely creepy. Uh, it was an influence on Eli Roth uh, with his movie Hostel. And Miike actually has a cameo in Hostel as one of the super rich people who pays to torture somebody. So he's got a walk on, which is kind of cool. Nice. There's a group out there called Time Out. They conducted a poll of people who write, produce, and act in horror movies for the best horror films. An audition was 18 out of 100. On wow. that list. Okay. <laughs> it is also on your list of 1,001 movies you must see before you die. Oh, nice. It was compiled yeah. by Steven Schneider. Yeah, no, not really my list. Somebody just stole my name. This was a huge influencer on the torture porn industry. When you had The Saw and Hostel and all of those movies, they came out on the heels of this film. Oh, okay. So this was this was kind of like the groundbreaking edge of that. This was bringing the end to the uh, the seven legacy of the '90s, ushering in the torture porn of the early 2000s. Got it. Okay. Well, that makes sense. The movie uh, was sponsored by a group called the Omega Project. Uh, they did Ringu which is the Japanese version of The Ring, and they wanted to follow up with its success. 
So they hired Mieke and bought the rights to the novel. And Mieke had used people he had worked with before. So almost all these actors he knew from before earlier things, except for Iihi, who had been a model before she did the movie. It's uh, played at Rotterdam Film Festival and holds the record for the number of walkouts in the film when it played there. Um, In fact, one of the ladies who left accosted him on her way out the door, telling him he was disgusting. And he was just thrilled by that. (laughs) That's great. And at the Swiss premiere, somebody actually passed out from watching the film. Wow, I haven't heard about that since the early days of movies. Yeah. It's it's really it's also very funny and this is this is a big thing we're going to run into with this film. Um it's it's a Japanese movie. And so there's two ways you can look at any piece of art. There's what the what the creator wanted it to be and then there's what you're going to get out of it, right? And uh, unless you're talking to the creator, you know, we don't know what Van Gogh thought about while he was painting sunflowers, right? But you can look at it and you can interpret sunflowers for what it means to you. This film has been hailed as a misogynistic piece of trash. And it has also been hailed as a powerful feminist statement. Wow. Ooh, that's disturbing. Right. It, it hits both sides of the line. And the the thing is, though, in Japan in the late '90s, the concept of feminism was nothing at all like it is like what people think of today. So, the chances are that if you're picking out a feminist thread out of this, it's something that you're putting into the film, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it might not be what he intended when he made the original film. Right, and you know, but that's the argument with art. Once you've released it to the wild, uh, it no longer belongs to you. Uh, That's that right. includes almost any creative endeavor, whether it be movies or sculptures or writing or whatever. Yeah. This movie also, not unlike Byzantium, uh, has a couple... It has two stories that are going that can be confusing, but it's not as bad as Byzantium, which had like modern day and then the past. <laughs> This just basically has Shigaharu's story as told as he remembers it. And then at the end, they go through and show you what actually was being said. And so the story that you get is in conflict with the story that you've seen. Uh, unreliable narrative, because again, is it really happening to him or just in his head because he's going crazy? Correct. Or he's so overcome with grief, you could say. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lump them together like we did by the Santium because it's not that confusing kind of thing. So if you're ready, then we'll just go ahead and jump in. Hey, you know me, I'm ready. Uh, The movie begins with Shigehiko walking down a hallway carrying an art project he wants to show his mom who's in a hospital. His mother's in a hospital. This started right off. My first thing was, huh? This is very Japanese because that boy looks like the one from the grudge. <laughs> huh. Well, yeah. Yeah, you can definitely see some um, uh, costuming Maybe, uh, similarities yeah. that happen throughout. 
It was just the way his hair was cut. You know, a little boy, you know, little kids look quite often alike, uh, but just his face structure, even in his dark eyes. I was yep. like, oh, well, we're getting a grudge vibe right here. Right. And he's carrying this giant art project. It looks like, I think it was like an ocean scene or something like that. It's yeah. immense. Um, he's coming down the hall to see his mom who's in a hospital bed and his father is at her side. She's dying of some disease. They don't tell you what it is. And just before Shigehiko arrives, the doctors tell his father, Shigaharu, that his wife, Ryoku, has died. Uh, the boy comes in and he has little understanding of what's actually going on. And he says, I brought this for mom. And his dad just kind of ends up collapsing on the floor. He doesn't know what to say. And there's this telling scene of the two of them walking alone down the street. And Shigaharu looks back like this is the moment when the two of them alone are looking back at the past and moving on into the future. The music's pretty. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the music here is simplistic. It's vaguely cute and somehow slightly unnerving if you know it's a horror movie. True. And I was going to argue once I watched the whole movie, that beginning part probably wasn't even really necessary because I think we get all the information about her death and his feelings for it more so later. Uh, I'm just, you know, we always laugh about the American remakes. But I could see that not even being a part of an American remake. It's just 15 minutes, 10 minutes that I, I didn't feel added to the uh, overall feel of the movie. Took away almost in a way. My, For that's me, my viewpoint. It, it felt like a, just an introduction to the characters and a, an explanation for the closeness of their relationship between the two of them. I could see that, but I think they did enough of that throughout the rest of the movie and probably could and conveyed the same information and feelings might've even made it stronger uh, because you know, he was only a 10 year old boy for those 10 minutes uh, and it jumped ahead and nothing else really referred to it other than the mother's dead. Just my, you know, that's a nitpicky thing from my viewpoint, I guess. Yeah. It cuts, like you said, right to the ocean seven years later, and the two of them are shore fishing. And the dad says, there there are so many times where they just layer in little threads about their personality and things throughout this movie. The dad says the sea's too rough, and the son catches the fish as the dad looks on proudly. And, you know, he's he's proud of what his son has become. The son teases him lightly about him not catching any fish. And the dad points out he's only interested in catching big fish. He's not interested in little ones. Um, right. The son says he prefers real girls to big fish. And the father says, someday you'll understand about love. Which, when you jump to the end of the movie, is ironic, to say the least. Yeah. Dad- and... and- I I would also say this scene was a really good example of why I like watching it with subtitles because you got to hear the emotion in their voices, even if you didn't understand what they were saying. And it comes out a lot more flat dull if it's an overdub. Yeah. The dad gets a phone call in the middle of this phone call from work. He catches a fish. 
manages to land the phone, land the fish and politely get off the phone, showing you that here's a guy who can juggle everything. He can be a great dad. <laughs> he can catch fish and do work all at the same time. He is the model Japanese businessman. <laughs> that evening, they're eating the fish, and the subject of the gender and sex of the fish comes up in conversation, which is not something I ever give two thoughts to while I'm eating my dinner, but right. the son throws out some pretty anatomically accurate stuff while the father claims ignorance about the whole thing. And then the son mentions that he's concerned about how worn out his father's looking lately. And right here, we're introduced into their uh, beagle puppy. The two of them have a beagle puppy named Gang- Gangu. The son asks Shigaharu uh, why he doesn't get married again. Um, he replies that that seems like that's kind of a random question. And Shigehiko finishes eating, gets up, and reminds his dad that it's his turn to do the dishes and takes off. <laughs> and th- th- like you said, this is a weird little scene. And this is one of the things that made me say, well, this is definitely not American. It's, you know, some foreign thing. But I also wonder if the translation came out a little poorly in a few places. Because just because, well, because it's ovaries change or whatever. I'm like, who the hell says that? I mean, it's either really bad dialogue or bad translation, in my opinion. But uh, Shigeharu ends up alone at the table. Then he's standing alone washing dishes. It's the whole scene at the end is very kind of lonely looking. When he takes Shigehiko out of the picture. Then we find out what Shigeharu does for a living. Uh, there's a video of people dancing and there's an editor working on the video and Shigeharu is giving him input. So obviously he's the one driving it, driving this, uh, you know, the creative decisions here. And he points out that the video looks like a cult gathering. And then the editor says, everybody in Japan is lonely. Shigeharu asks him if he's lonely and he says, aren't you? Which ties in back to the scene of him washing the dishes, that very lonely scene. And he leaves the editing booth, grabs his stuff, and he's getting ready to leave. And he's talking to a secretary and he's going over a schedule for the rest of the day. And there's this weird, awkward pause where she's just looking at him. And as he's leaving, she follows him to the elevator and tells him that she's getting married. And he says, oh, congratulations. And she's still just looking at him. And it's really awkward. And he's just looking back. And the elevator doors close. And she just stares at the elevator doors. And you're like, that was weird. Yeah, very (laughs) weird. So I took that. For my first thing was like, wait a second. If they work together and he might seem kind of maybe like her boss or at least a superior, he wouldn't know anything about her dating or whatever. but it kind of comes up later, you know, how about an arranged marriage, which seems like a thing that could be very quick. Uh, so I wasn't sure, but I also took it as maybe she has a bit of a crush on him and has been wanting him to ask her out. But you know, that feminist thing, she, she can't be the one to approach him. And she was kind of yeah. hoping he would stop. You must not do this. I demand that you, you know, this is where but the cultural differences tr- start to raise their head. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. 
in Japan in the late 90s, that's not a thing that would happen where she would just like suddenly ask him out, you know, if that was the case. Right. He ends up meeting up with his friend Yashikawa at this upscale bar with like the best bartender in the world. They don't even have to ask for drinks. He just prepares them and sets them down in front of him. They're talking about business. There's a group of ladies laughing at a table nearby, and they refer to them as awful, common, and stupid girls. Not a whole high respect for ladies having a good time. Translation, too. Then they lament that all the good girls are gone. Shigaharu says he might get married again. He doesn't know who to. And that's that's when uh, Yoshikawa's like, is it going to be an arranged marriage? He's like, no. I'm like a beautiful, mature career woman with accomplishments. Hey, buddy, who would? Right. Like, <laughs> but uh, for us, talking arranged marriage sounds odd, even though that was kind of practiced in our country years and years ago. Uh, you know, when the settlers and stuff but it just sounds odd nowadays it does to be fair though i went to school with people um from india a good friend of ours from india whose parents were like when are you going to come home we can we can pick a bride out for you anytime and he's like no i'm going to marry who i want to here in the states because that kind of thing still happens so yeah it does and they you know Big Bang Theory joked about it with Raj all the time, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's odd to us, but other places. <laughs> so Yokohawa, Yoshikawa, I'm sorry, Yoshikawa proposes that they do an audition, which is, on, on the one hand, it's almost humorous. On the other hand, it's crazy sexist and on the third hand it's really kind of a creepy abuse of power um what he's gonna do is yoshikawa is a a television producer and he shows him a script for a romance about a dancer and that they'll hold an audition for the female lead and shigaharu won't actually marry the actual lead of the thing because you wouldn't you know she wouldn't have him and she wouldn't be the marrying type, but he can pick from the rest of the women who audition. That was even more sexist, kind of true, but very sexist. Yeah. And he, he makes it seem like it'll be picking the perfect woman. You know, they're like pick out 10 out of the thousand who come to apply for this, but he's, you know, Yashikawa's guaranteeing him. This is going to work. And she, right. it's, it's- it might be another cultural thing, but it's kind of like, you know, you pick out who you want. It's a done deal. They kind of have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as Shigaharu is on his way home on the radio, on his car ride is the ad, the calling the cattle call for these women to come in to the audition. And here's where the first of the bizarre disjointed scenes happens. Cause he's sitting in traffic, listening to this ad. And then it cuts to this very sparse room with like a phone and a radio and this little girl who's listening to the exact same ad. And then it cuts right back to Shigaharu again. And you're like, wow, that seemed a little odd to be just interjected right there. Shigaharu comes home and his housekeeper is on her way out. 
His dinner just needs heating up. She needs to get groceries, uh, which is fine with him because he wants to be alone with this giant dossier of headshots and applications for girls for this audition that he can just pick his next wife out of, apparently. <laughs> and maybe a lead for the show if you know if they could. But... Oh, yeah, you know, the show's completely almost made up anyways. Uh, he's leaping through the stacks. He looks over at the photo of his wife. His deceased wife is sitting on the desk, and he turns it. So he knows what he's doing is wrong. He's just choosing to continue anyways. He calls Yoshikawa and compares it to picking out his first car. Yoshikawa tells him to pick 30, and the audition's in a week. He says, don't go by the picture alone. Read their applications. His son interrupts him to announce that there's a girl that he has. He's brought a girl home and Shigahara's like, oh, you can give her my dinner. The two of you can eat my dinner. And then he spills tea on this one application and he pulls the application out that he spilled the tea on. He's wiping it off and it happens to be a Sami's application. And he stares at her at her photo and it's like, bam, hit with a ton of bricks. This is the one. She's a classically trained actress. It says she was a dancer. She has this essay about when she was a ballet dancer, life was great, but then she had some injury and she couldn't dance anymore. And losing the ability to dance is like dying. And the acceptance of the loss of dance is like learning to accept death. And he loves that essay. And the picture. The picture doesn't hurt. So then he walks out and introduces himself to his son's friend. She hears that uh, she's eaten his dinner and like automatic, she's like, oh, let me make you some food. I don't know that I've ever been visiting someone's house and been like, oh, wait, let me go into your kitchen and cook you something. (laughs) But again, you know, we were talking the cultural stuff. Yes. You know, he was like, no, 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 don't do that. It's fine. You know, it was like almost expected a common thing. And, you know, that, I can see, you know, those little things every now and then that the feminist comment, uh, you know, how this could be enlightening in a very oppressive type culture Yeah, for, for that. Well, he says, no, don't bother. I'm going to take the dog out for a walk. And as he's leaving, he gives his son the old, yeah, boy, look at her. She's, she's cute. I'm leaving you guys alone for a while. And just like, ew. <laughs> Shouldn't be, you know. Yeah, there, there was some awkwardness throughout this movie and a few things like that. They seemed a little more forced than not anything else. So here's one of the things that I found specifically with Japanese horror films is there are some films that you get like just right away and you'll watch it and you'll be like, okay, you know, this is good. And the names of like all of them escape. Well, like Ringu and, and, uh, Suicide Club, even a little bit, you'll you'll watch them and you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, this horror movie, and then there are some that have these cultural things like Big Man Japan and Hausa, and you're watching it and you're going, I really am not getting this because the culture difference is like really highlighted. This movie walks the line between those two. So yeah, yeah, agreed. If it went a little bit more to the left, I don't think it would play as well among Western cultures because it would be too Eastern in its cultural references. But, you know, it walks that fine line. So 
the the auditions the next day and it feels like you're watching like a game show or a comedy or something yes yeah, yeah. they're sitting at a desk and they're just running through these girls shigaharu says at the start that he feels like a criminal um and during the entire process yoshikawa runs it and shigaharu says nothing he just sits there and watches these girls get up and you know this is where i and- tried my first suicide attempt and this is my second right and uh, this scene i really like because we're talking about the stereotypes and japanese culture and how it's different this scene was not what i would have expected from a japanese movie it was loose it was humorous they were being silly uh the one girl like came back a second time they're like didn't you come in a race? She's like, right, but I wasn't done talking. And right. a lot of it just seemed very un-Japanese to me. Uh, not that I'm super familiar with the culture. I've never been there. I don't know the feel. But based on the movies I've watched and the scenes in those movies, this scene I wouldn't have expected. And it was totally – if I didn't know it was Japanese, I would have had a hard time guessing it was Japanese from this scene. And this is – this is, harkens back to my whole thing about Korean films where they'll shift gears hard in the middle of a film. And that's kind of what this felt like. It was, this is one of those scenes that harkens back to that, that kind of Korean tradition of like, you're watching this. Now you're watching something completely different. And so you had this father-son thing that leads up to, bam, here's this quintessential humorous kind of thing that's going on. It doesn't feel anything else like the rest of the movie that you've seen so right. far. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They decide to take a 10 minute break and Shigeharu goes out to use the bathroom and on his way back, he sees Asami across the room. She's not looking at him. Her back is to him wearing white. Her hair is immaculate. Um, reading a book or maybe it's the script or something. You know, he knows it's her just from looking at her back and goes in and sits down. And he's only seen a picture from the front before. <laughs> yes. But it's it's this mystical draw between the two of them. Um, and then you're back to the game show. You know, you've got this girl twirling batons and one girl just comes in and instantly starts taking her clothes off. And so you have that whole thing. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, you know, kind of comedy thing, he slams on the brakes and the door opens and in comes Asami. And like the movie just takes a second to pause to breathe. She comes in and she bows four times in this scene. She bows when she first walks in the door, she gives them a bow. She walks to her ta- to the chair. She bows again. And then she sits down when the interview is done. She stands up, she bows, walks back to the door, stops, bows again and walks back out. She is supposed to represent the quintessential, etically, classically trained etiquette Japanese woman you could possibly have. And to, so, to make the change later even more dynamically. Yes. <laughs> but also to make her that much more appealing to uh, Shigaharu because that's exactly what he's looking for, right? Right. He wants and, this. And so- no, knowing she had that little scene, they listening to the radio, knowing she's at this interview and knowing that he likes her. And later, what, you know, at the end of the movie, you almost wonder, did she set this up somehow? Is there a supernatural force directing this? And she's kind of controlling it there. There's kind of those questions that start cropping up 
uh, throughout this too. They don't show any of that, but you got to wonder. It it's very reminiscent of like a spider. If you think of it that way, like she has cast this web out and he's just there like the fly. He's twitching the threads and there's a scene coming up in a bit that really like reinforces that kind of this whole thing's yeah, been a yeah. trap that's been laid for him. She sits down and, uh, um, shoot. Uh Oh, sorry. She sits down and they start, they start asking her questions. Uh, she says she's never been on TV, but she's been asked several times. She claims she's represented by Mr. Shibata at Ace Records, and she works three times a week for a friend who owns a bar in Ginza. She doesn't want to be rich or poor. She just wants enough money to buy some books and some CDs. And then Shigaharu like, says he has a question, and then he just goes on and on about how much he loved her essay on her resume. It's not a question. There's nothing for her to respond to. When he's done, she just looks at him kind of awkwardly and she's like, thank you. <laughs> and then he's like looking all proud of himself and he like nods his head and she thanks him again. And the interview's over. And Yashikawa is nervous about her, but Shigaharu is over the moon. She leaves, he gets up and walks over to her chair and sits in it. And he's just like, that's it. Call the audition off. I'm done. I mean, he doesn't actually say that, but that's basically what he's saying. Yeah. It's the only time he talked all day. Yeah. Yashikawa was just like, I don't know, man, I'm getting bad mojo vibes from this. And that's pretty much his standard line. The rest of the movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Uh, Shigaharu's back home. He's eating with Shigahiko. He's drinking scotch. The guy likes him some scotch. He drinks a lot of it. Um, Shigehiko finishes his dinner and runs off to study something about some dinosaur thing. Uh, so Shigeharu takes his scotch, goes back to Asami's resume, and then he just calls her up and asks her out. And she's like, okay. And as he's talking to her on the phone, the camera actually zooms in and has this one shot where you can see a photograph of his wife as he's talking um, to her, to Asami on the phone. Yoshikawa calls him up and says he tried to get a hold of Shibata at Ace Records, but he's been missing for 18 months and he still just doesn't trust her. As you said, this is Yoshikawa's broken record line. I don't trust this lady. Uh, the next scene, though, Shigahara is with her at lunch. She's dressed in white. She wears white in every scene in this movie except at the end. So she's wearing white. She's like, this is, she's like, all I have to do is um, sit here and enjoy some nice food. That's the best offer I've ever had. So he asks her about Mr. Shibata and, you know, and she admits, oh, I lied about it. Cause everybody said you should have an agent. And every time we see she's wearing white and white, I have on my notes, like some kind of angel, but, in Japanese culture, white is the color of the gods. In Buddhist culture, um, and you know, Buddhism has a decent sway in Japan, it's the color of death. 
And so if you combine the two of them, you know, Asami has become the goddess of death in every scene she's sitting in. The food comes. She thinks it's amazing. Could they do this again sometime? Shigeharu is just absolutely thrilled. He goes to tell Yoshikawa about it. And Yoshikawa is practicing his golf on the roof of his Japanese high rise where they work. And Shigeharu, symbolically, he's got these golf balls and he's throwing them at the basket and he's missing every time. He says, she's the one. She's she's absolutely the one. And Yoshikawa's like, eh, I don't know. She doesn't have a background. I can't even find anyone who likes her or who knows her. And Shigakara's <laughs> like, I don't care. If she causes trouble, I can handle it. And so Yoshikawa tells him to wait a bit before he calls her back. Just let it cool down a bit. And he agrees to that. We have reached 43 minutes into the film at this point. Yeah. And we get to the first indication that something's off. Because the next scene is Asami sitting in that very sparse apartment that we saw earlier on the floor, staring at a phone that's what sits that is sitting next to what looks like a giant full laundry bag, right? And she's just sitting there full on, you know, Juan grudge thing straight hair just hanging in her face just sitting there it cuts back to the scene of shigaharu sleeping in a dream he sees his wife looking at him from a distance behind a tree on a beach then it cuts back to that room asami still hasn't moved the next day he takes the day off work and his housekeeper's like wow that's rare you must have a lady friend and he almost calls her but he resists then the next day, he's at work, and his secretary's leaving the office, and there's this awkward moment with the secretary again. She's like, eh, looking at him. He's ignoring her. He looks at his phone. We cut back. Asami is still sitting in the exact same place. It even looks like she might be asleep, just yeah. sitting there it on the say, floor. hasn't moved at right. all. I mean, she's just crouched over and... Uh, you know, I, again, it's one of those little things that, taken by itself, it's not too weird. But when you do it over days, then yes. you start getting that creep factor. <laughs> and this is this is where the spider thing comes in, like the spider sitting in the middle of the web, just waiting and just waiting. He eventually caves and calls, and when the phone starts to ring, it zooms in on her and she smiles, and you're like, yes, the spider. And that is- the scariest, creepiest smile. <laughs> then the laundry bag moves and there's yeah. this growling noise and you're like, what it the hell flops. was that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then they cut. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in this horror movie, you're 43 minutes in and probably 50 minutes. And then all of a sudden, whoa, there's this really weird horror element that happens. And then we're back to them. You know, she meets him for dinner and says that she was waiting for his call. She really, really was waiting for your call, dude. And, and it, 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 uh, 
it's definitely she wasn't waiting for the audition call back. It was she, like you said, the spider. She was waiting for his call, and that again, it how did she set all this up somehow? Did she lure him? You know, whatever means to be a part of the audition so she could go there and lure him. You know, it really has that vibe, which makes it on a level creepier than just it, what's going on. It's really funny because I had never actually given her any causation to the whole thing until you just brought it up. And now I keep thinking about it. I can't stop thinking about it. Like there's no real way she could have done that. Right. But you know, maybe there is some sort of mystical force that's behind this whole movie that, you know, I never noticed until just now. (laughs) It's a, it's one of our movies that, if you just take it on the surface and watch it, I can see a lot of people going, well, that was stupid. But then you dig down into it a little more and you think about it. And there's just parts of it that it's some of the best movies I've seen where you can discuss it with somebody and catch things and a viewpoint and say things and back and just layers like an onion that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily see the first time. I, I would almost never do this for a two hour long movie, but this is a movie that if you watch it through once, it really behooves you to watch it through a second time. Right. Because there's so many things, so many of these elements that just are, are tucked away in there. And that's why uh, the director is probably very revered, popular director, even though this movie didn't make tons of money and, but it got a lot of acclaim. And this is why when you delve into a movie like this, you know, heck, I, we should pass some of these off to Bob. He'd probably love watching a few of these if he hasn't. He was just out this weekend, actually. It, I didn't see him, but I heard he was out this weekend. Uh, so she meets him for dinner, says she was waiting for his call. And here's one of the biggest ones where uh, you can see the difference between what he hears during the dinner and what was actually said that comes in the comes right. later. He asks her about her family, and she says they're fine. They recently moved because her father wanted to be near a golf course. She says they aren't close, but they don't fight. And she says she's still working at this bar. It's called the Stonefish. He asks if he can go sometime, and she says, I'd rather you don't, because the owner's always up in her business. She informs him she would never lie to him. Yeah. Yes. Um, Right there. I won't ever lie to you. Every time that's said, well, you know, it's a lie. You yes. know, isn't that the, the classic, you know, one of these two people is lying. Well, I'm not. Well, he is, you know, it's one of those puzzle things. And so after the bag and the smile and her saying, I won't lie to you and knowing it's some sort of horror movie, I didn't know what type yet, but I said, wow, I, I kind of feel like I'm watching the evolution of my first marriage right here. So that's kind of the feeling I got. If anybody wants to do a movie, it'd be like this. There one. you go. Um, <laughs> Mike does this brilliant thing though, because they're at dinner, and you don't even notice it until um, she says she would never lie to him. Then he pulls back, and it's a wide shot of the of the cafe, and you can see it's empty. So they have been sitting there for a long time. Um, he tells her that the film project's follow, fallen through. It's not going to get made. And then she talks about how when she's with him, she feels connected to something beautiful. And they see that they're in... A, and now all of a sudden you can see they're in a different restaurant eating dinner. So I don't think it's a second date. I think it was kind of like, let's meet here for drinks and then let's go here for dinner. 
but the way he threads it to through it it's this kind of like seamless thing like i don't if you've ever had like one of those amazing days where you've had lots of things happen you miss you miss a lot of the details you just remember the highlights from all the different things and the whole thing just kind of runs together that's what this is right. to him well well I know listening to her talk by now, everything she says is like a double meaning and I'm getting like PTSD flashbacks here. So it's very horrific for me on a different personal level. (laughs) Yes. Uh, She talks about losing the ability to dance and he tells her she'll get over it. She says she's never had anyone she could talk to. He listens to her and then they're in the car and he (laughs) says he'll call her again and she thanks him and gets out of the car. And as they drive away, he's just looking at her. And then the, that's that whole section ends with a shot of the phone and the giant tied up laundry bag. Just to remind you, <laughs> that seemed like a nice date, but. Right. We don't want to get too far away from our goal here. Yeah. Uh, he goes home and informs Shikihiko that he's seeing somebody and Shikihiko like starts to you know tease him a little bit about it. And then he says, we're spending the weekend together. And then it cuts right to a car going through the Japanese countryside. And they arrive at this stunning remote looking resort. Um, And he's kind of like sitting in a chair and he's all nervous and he's going over things they could do. There's this coffee shop and there's this gallery. And she just like walks over. This seems again, is it a cultural thing or what? Because the, the progression just seems odd that he met with her and only him ha, you know hasn't met the son they haven't been over to the house it just it, it may be the culture thing and thinking arrange a marriage even well i picked you so you're marrying me that's the end of the story there's no dating needed uh it just seemed very quick and odd to me uh but again if she's kind of controlling him then he's doing actions beyond his control. He's forced to do these without realizing it. Yeah. Fated to do it, whether he wants to or not. And you really see that because he's sitting there like talking about having basically like a date, you know, it's like, while we're here, there's this gallery and all this stuff. And she turns out the light takes off her clothes. Um, she still manages to somehow maintain some modesty. She climbs underneath the sheets and she tells him to come over to the bed. You can see from looking at it, he's hesitant about it. And then she says, please. Yeah. So then he gets up and he walks over there and he begins to start to take his clothes off. And she says, no, just stop. Just look. And she like pulls the sheets up and you're like, wow. Okay. But she stops and she has this pair of scars, like two lines on the inside of her right thigh. She tells him she burnt herself when she was young and she wants him to know everything about her. Which again is one of those loaded statements. That's like, Oh, I got to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Plus that I, I don't know. And maybe a lot of women would be like this, but those two little burn marks on a, a thigh and she considers herself unworthily ugly. You know, uh, and I know that's a common thing that comes up in some of the Japanese movies and stories uh, that some little thing like that is considered, you know, oh, my God, I can't ever even look at you. You're so ugly type feeling. Um, 
and I'm sure other cultures, even American women are like that, but I was like waiting for like her legs to be these mangled messes and stuff, you know? No, it's just two lines, but it reminds me of that, um, Japanese ceramic tradition of, you know, you have a master ceramicist who's makes something and he purposely puts a flaw in it just to prove that it's not divine kind of thing. Right. Um, so it kind of makes me think. Right. And, and arguably what she's kind of teasing him at is looking inside her, looking at her actual soul, testing him in a way. Can you actually see what I, who I am? Uh, and he doesn't. So nope, again, not PTSD flashbacks going on. She removes the sheet <laughs> entirely. And um, she tells him, love me and nobody else. And he says, he ding, will. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Then she reinforces Run away. it. Run quickly. Yes. Go! <laughs> she reinforces it by saying, love me alone. Promise, love no one else but me. Out of context, this is a very sweet scene. But especially if you've seen the whole movie, you come back to this scene and you're like, no, dude, listen to what she's saying right, and think right. about it before... <laughs> And we've had very different marriages, so there's a different viewpoint to watching That's it. That's true. That's true. Um there's this there's this cut scene, you know, as you know, he's just about to get it on. There's this cut scene that resolves in the sheets being all balled up and it's vaguely reminiscent of a certain giant laundry bag that sits next to a black phone. Yeah. And then he suddenly wakes up and he's alone. And the phone's ringing and it's the front desk and he's they very, need to know if he's staying because his date just left. He's, he's very like, groggy and yeah. can't like what happened. Uh, and yeah. they didn't show him getting drugged. And I was thinking about this afterwards. I'm like, he wasn't drugged like through his drink or something. That's just her. She, I, I think, well, she might've, they might not have shown it because things coming up later, but it, it, to me, it was like, that's her. She's got him under her spell, under her power now. That's what yes. I took from this initially. Yeah. Um, I, and I think, well, I'll, I'll get to it later. There, it's, this is followed by a very tense scene between Shigaharu and Yoshikawa, where um, he's trying to get more information on her, and Yoshikawa's like, you can't find anything, just forget about it. and then Shigaharu, like they end up yelling at each other and Shigaharu like storms off. But that whole scene is shot crazy frenetically. I mean, the cuts are like yeah. abrupt and there's a thousand of them. It's just like, bam, 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 bam. And so the whole thing feels tense. Like you can feel the tension in the room just from the way that it was shot. Right. Uh, Shigaharu notes on her resume is the name of the dance studio where she trained. So off he goes. He's, He's gonna. This is his grail. He's gonna find this girl. Again, you know, it on paper it sounds like a romance. You know, I'm gonna find her, and when the yeah. music's gonna play, and it's gonna be beautiful. Uh, he goes and he finds the dance studio, and it's all boarded up. And he's thinking about leaving, and then he hears a piano playing. So he basically just rips the boards off and goes inside. One of the things I noted, and you want to talk about cultural differences, he goes inside this boarded up dance studio 
Once he gets inside, he takes his shoes off. I didn't even realize. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> because even in though, Japan, you don't yeah. wear your shoes indoors, even if it's a boarded up dance studio that looks like it's abandoned. Um, There's an old yeah. guy in, in a wheelchair. Of course, sitting I would there. have been bailing. I, I would have been out of there. <laughs> Just come on. <laughs> I'm done. I, of course, now that's wisdom speaking. That's what yes. that is. <laughs> There's an old guy sitting there in a wheelchair playing the piano. Um, and Shigeharu asks him if he knows Asami. And the guy tells him to go away. And Shigeharu's like, no. Uh, if you ever had any problems with Asami, do you know how to get a hold of her? And the guy starts to laugh. And he's like, have you seen her? Have you heard her voice? And the guy is just creepy. And he's asking these intrusive questions. And there's this flashback. This is the Japanese thing with the time and the perspective. You get this flashback that he's the one who burnt her legs. Yeah. Um, and then he reveals that he's got these clunky wooden carved prosthetic feet. Like his legs have been amputated. And he tells Shigaharu to go. And so Shigaharu takes Steve's advice and is out of there. Just to keep investigating. <laughs> yes, that's true. He he's learned. Not... Right. So he uh, heads to the stone fish. He gets there and turns out that it's closed. And he meets somebody who lives near there and says it's been closed for a while because of the murders. Ding, ding, like, ding, ding. Come on. <laughs> He's like, what murders? And he's like, oh, well, uh, the bar, the owner was like cut up into pieces. But here's the weird thing. I mean, this guy's got the details, right? There was an additional tongue and ear and three fingers found on the crime scene that were not part of the victim who was cut up. And then Shigaharu has this flash right. in his mind of like three fingers and like the tongue. And it's still wiggling. And he's like, ah, freaked out by the whole thing. Right, right. And that they showed it was like really kind of gruesome. You know, American audiences are like that scene there. But you start wondering, wait a second. First, he's investigating her and every place is closed up. There's murders around it. And and then I'm going, and then you, you focus on the, wait, extra fingers and tongue. So... She had these to drop on the floor from elsewhere. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's her at this point. I mean, there wouldn't be, it wouldn't make sense to be some random thug or anything, you know? So she had these and dropped them on the floor to add to the, where'd those come from? And this is now I see what you're saying about the time thing with Japanese films. Yeah. And, and there's, it's, that's a detail you don't ever get from any other murder thing. You don't ever hear like on, Law and Order SVU, where they're like, oh, yeah, the per the victim's in there. and Oh, yeah, there happened to be an extra hand just laying around. We didn't know where it came from, but there it is. You know, that's just like a really right. odd detail for a murder scene. But we are but now... it wasn't a hand. It was fingers and a tongue. Yes, yeah, three fingers know. and a tongue. Um, We now get the visitation, the surprise visitation. There's a, a shot of the house, and this is a point-of-view camera. So you're seeing through the eyes of somebody at the house. The housekeeper is leaving for the day. She feeds Gangu. Um, and then she leaves. And you can see the point of view heads to the back door. Um, they go inside. They see a picture of Shigaharu's wife. And then the eyes, the eyes, the camera settles on his 
decanter of scotch. Yeah. And again, you know, we're suspecting who this is at this point. If you're not, then you haven't really been watching. But it it goes back again. The way it came into the house, it like just kind of zipped through it and was like even moving around when they were there, but nobody heard or noticed anything. So it, it made me think back to the, well, what type of spiritual force is she? You know, what she's not physically there. She's like her body's projected. That's like, when she's in that state crouching and not moving, is she doing like an astral projection or something and controlling people from there? It, I mean, it, it's just my possible interpretations, but it, it, it really hints at it a lot throughout the movie. Almost like she's a kami, you know, the Japanese spirits kind of thing. Very much so. So if you like horror with slasher or horror with supernatural or horror with psychotic, you kind of got all of that in here. Throwing a little rom-com for the date, and it's a perfect date movie. I I think that's one of the beautiful things about this movie is you can make it what you want it to be. You know what I mean? No, this is the most misogynistic piece of crap. No, it's a great feminist manifesto. And it's like, yes to both. Right. Yeah. Is is she some kind of crazy spirit or just psychotic? Yes. To yeah. both. Yeah. Well, he gets home and he pours himself a scotch. And he sits there and he's drinking it and he's reflecting on his day. And there's this really I, I it was a striking shot. It's a close up of his hand on the leather, and he kind of like caresses the leather a little bit. And then he kind of gets this look on his face like he doesn't feel quite right. And he stands up and he starts to feel worse. And he's walking along and he just falls over. Just falls flat onto the floor. He starts to fall over. Yes. And now we get to see all of the conversations and the perspectives that he missed. This is this is where it comes in. Um. So he remember we go back to that conversation where they're sitting at the restaurant. She's talking about her family and it's nothing at all. Like he remembered Um, her parents were divorced when she was young. So she went to live with an abusive uncle and his wife there. She was beaten and abused so badly. The doctor suggested they go live with her mother at like seven years old. Her mother had a new husband who hated her and was always around and she would hide in her room until her mother got home from work. Dancing is what helps her cope with all that. And the whole thing's very surreal because it's flowing from one thing to the other. And it makes sense that it's surreal because he's been drugged. So, you know, this is almost like a dream state for him. So it flows, it it flows like that. So they're not just in the restaurant talking about this and dancing helps her cope. And while he's remembering this, Ryoko, his wife, his deceased wife, and his son, the young son, and Shigehiko's current girlfriend are sitting at the table next to him. And Ryoko tells him not to marry Asami. And he's, you know, because he introduces the two together. And then it cuts to Asami's. Yeah. Oh, this is the woman I'm going to (laughs) marry. Don't marry her. Uh, it cuts to Asami's apartment, and she just drops to her knees to pleasure him. And 
he like looks down and it turns out it's his secretary all of a sudden. And she says she slept with him once, hoping it would make him love her, and he didn't. Now we have an explanation for all of the weird awkwardness between the two of them. Because he was her boss, slept with her, didn't think another thing of it, but it hit her hard, and she was convinced that this man was going to love her. Afraid not. Then it changes to Shigahiko's girlfriend, and he freaks out. As he's trying to escape back away from her, he trips over the laundry bag, which because he's in Asami's apartment, and it wiggles. Yeah. And he comes up to it closely, and he pokes it with his foot, and he reaches down to untie it. And there's a man inside. Only part of a man, though, because he's missing three fingers, an ear, and a tongue. Ah, now we know where they came from. Yes. I am going to bet this is the guy from Ace Records. They never specific say, specifically so, say this, yeah. but he's been missing for 18 months. Right. And at first, this was a weird thing because you mentioned the time thing. At first, I thought that was him in the bag. I thought he, like, you know, that time thing that she tied him up, he was in the bag and that was him and he found himself. Because right after that, uh, he finishes his fall, but I, I, I was, I was like, hold on, what the hell just happened? It was very, very, boom, boom, boom. Like, really pay attention there. <laughs> yes, it's true, and I always took it as you are going to be the man in that bag. That too, yeah. Either yeah. way, and and the whole scene though, again, you question: is it real? Is it happening in his mind? How is he getting all of this? And based on, you know, what I said about the, the spirit in the house and what you said about her being the spider controlling things, you know, it's like she's manipulating reality almost here uh, and changing what actually has happened or whatever. Or yeah. he's been under her control and he's kind of breaking out of it a little bit and seeing things differently. Uh, it's his chance to get away, which doesn't really happen. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's a pretty disgusting part of it. Uh, he sees this guy missing his fingers and his tongue and his ear, and he looks over and Asami's standing there holding a, a dog food bowl and she throws up in it and sets it down in front of him. And he starts to suck it up because apparently that's the only thing he gets to eat now to make it a little more disturbing. Um, the actress actually did throw up into the bowl. Oh, that's dedication. Because she was so method into this film. Wow. Was, yeah. I yeah. don't want to watch that scene again now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then Asami turns into the little girl, young Asami, um, and she reminds him that he will love only her. And it cuts back to the dance instructor burning her thighs. But he, um, she's an adult this time. And we see her approach him from behind it as he's playing the piano. And she's got this weird wire garrot. And she, he's just sitting there and she says, oh, the wire cuts through bones so easily. And she wraps it around his head and just starts sawing back and forth. And, and he keeps cuts playing. his head off. Yeah, yeah. So that, is that something that actually happened? Uh, since uh, she met, um, what's his name? Uh, Ayamu. Uh, 
Shigahara in the sense that they met? Or is it something that she thought about? Uh, or was it something she did before and he was really talking to a ghost, a spirit in the dance studio? And that's why it was oh, that's, closed up. That's an interesting take. For me, because the the dance instructor is such a creepy character, I was hoping that it was something that she did after he had visited him. She just showed up and like tying up loose ends, beheaded him. Yeah. But it, it, you're... Could it could have been he yeah she might have done it a long time ago and the guy was just talking to his hit the guy's ghost yeah it, it's it just adds to that multiple levels yeah so uh she's she beheads him and then she says i never felt unhappy really because i never stopped being unhappy and all of the time she's saying these like that's her voice it's just like i never felt unhappy really because i never stopped being unhappy and you're just like Considering the words you're saying and the tone you're saying them, it doesn't match up. Yeah, I have that note too. With her high-pitched little girl voice, which she might have done for the role or whatever, and what is going on, it's again one of those things that makes it even creepier. Yes. This movie is nothing if not creepy. (laughs) I mean, it's long for sure. But once you get into the creepy parts, it's creepy. Yeah. Uh, Then there's this whole little compilation of memories culminating in him lying on the floor of his house. And here is where you finally see Asami not wearing white. She is wearing white, but she's putting on black leather, a big black leather apron, giant black gloves. There's a, you see a shot of the dog lying on the floor, dead tongue lying out of its mouth. What, what is it about foreign <laughs> films liking to kill dogs? American audiences like flip out about that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so she, she comes into the room dressed like this. And if you ever look up audition, this this outfit is what you always see her on. And Google, yeah. like all the Google images, this is her in her black leather apron. And she's carrying this giant medical bag. Big old bag. That's always Never a scary a thing sign. to see. Yeah. She opens it up and pulls out a syringe and fills it up. And she's explaining to him with that beautiful sing-song voice that you're paralyzed, but your nerves still work. You just can't move. (laughs) And then she injects his tongue with whatever was in the syringe. And you're like, oh my gosh. In the tongue. The only worse is like, you know, going through the eye socket or something, you know, or ear. Eye socket, you say. the tongue was horrible. Oh yeah. Speaking of, and you know, stop. You know what they need to do with this character? They need to do the next Hellraiser movie with her becoming one of the, um, whatever they're called. Cinebites. Cybot thing. Cinebites. Yeah. 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 She, um, gets out this great big tarp or it's not a tarp. It's a canvas lays it on the floor. It's a bag. Yeah. Rolls him on top of it and then straddles him with a pair of scissors. And cuts his shirt off. She explains to him that she knew the audition was just a trap to have sex with girls. And then she gets out this box that has what look like acupuncture needles on steroids. They're no bigger around than acupuncture needles, but they're, you know, nine inches long, for goodness sake. So she sits there and starts putting them into her his abdomen. And they're long enough to reach like his soft organs. And she keeps saying deeper as she goes. But in Japanese, and again, you know, apologize for my pronunciation, but it's like 
tiki 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 she keeps making that noise as she's putting it in you're just like oh shuddering yes and she's like words are lies but pain doesn't lie when you're in pain you see your own shape clearly she's got all these words of twisted wisdom throughout this entire thing so then she moves to his eyes because steve asked for it (laughs) you gotta have that um and as she does it there's this point of view shot you know as she's putting the needles in and when the camera pulls back She's not putting it into his eyeballs. She's putting it into the tissues directly around oh, wow. the eye. Yeah. Which yeah. perhaps is even worse. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, well, you know, that is one of the things. Uh, a lot of Asian cultures, they, they study all the, the nerve clusters, and that's why they do the acupuncture. So she, and she was a dancer, so she probably knows right where to put it, where it's going to hurt the most. Oh yeah, and then she does like one of the. It, it's I don't want to say one of the worst things because this whole ending part is pretty bad. But she flicks one of the needles as she's getting up, and I'm just like, oh, that's got to because she, you know, especially with the elasticity of the metal, it's going to sit there and yeah. vibrate for a while too. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> the last part of this is very cringy. This is this will make your butt pucker. Um, she goes over she starts putting these weird metal things together and she's she mentions that shigehiko lives in the house and he too should achieve clarity just like shigehiro is right now yeah she's she's yeah thank you for that yeah so she takes this metal thing it's like a cuff but it's like a cuff tourniquet she puts it on his leg and like cranks it down she says no one she has no one so she could love him totally she could love shigeharu totally because she has no one but he can't because he's got a son and he's got a deceased wife that he has to share his love with so then she gets out her old wire wraps it around his left foot with the tourniquet and just starts and off goes the foot smiling and kind of singing and enjoying Almost, it. Yes. It's like, like a little girl sitting in a field with flowers is what she, cause she's sitting, you know, in that kind of kneeling position almost. And then she just takes his left foot and throws it. There's this scene from outside the window. She throws it and it hits the window and falls down. And I thought to myself as carelessly as they were throwing away the hopes and dreams of all these girls in this audition, she is throwing away his left foot. Wow. She just nice. So, so what care. you're saying is all those hopes and dreams are worth nothing more than a left foot. My left foot. <laughs> Speaking of movies. Uh, yeah. She's smiling and laughing as she's doing it. And then she goes and gets started on the right. And for me, this is almost worse. <laughs> yeah. She gets started on the right, but Shigehiko comes home. So she stops. And the reason why for me that seems worse is because at some point in time, someone's going to have to get that wire out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. His left foot, they don't well, have could to. Just leave it. it. It'll grow in like a tree, like a chain around a tree. Ew. Um, she gets out this spray stuff and, um, 
Shigeharu starts to hallucinate. Kudos to him for still being conscious, even at this stage of the game, right? <laughs> yeah. But he's he's hallucinating, um, and in in this hallucination, he wakes up in bed with her at the resort, and she accepts his proposal for marriage. And even there, in in his hallucination, she knew that the audition was a scam. And just about here, you're like, maybe this whole thing's been a nightmare, and and you know he, they're yes. actually are being happy. But then you hear this, and he wakes back up. Yeah. Um. Shigehiko comes into the room, sees his dad there, freaks out, and Asami comes running out with the spray. And there's this chase. She keeps trying to spray him, and he keeps like getting out of the way. He runs up the stairs. And she's following up the stairs, spraying the whole time. And he's on his back as she gets to the top of the stairs and he kicks and connects. And she doesn't fall down the stairs because I don't think she touches them. She just falls onto her neck. And so she does, she's motionless. Now she's not dead. Um, She's lying there and she, she can see Shigaharu. And Shigaharu can see her and the kids calling nine one one and, you know, saying, you know, Hey, this, my dad's here, this woman's here and they zoom in on her. And I got to imagine it's just, you know, she's really thin, like her bone structure, but the way she was laying, it looked like you could see that her neck was broken, you know? Yeah. It looked like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then she's talking like, she doesn't stop talking. She's like, I thought you said you were busy. I don't understand your business. You may think I'm a clingy sort of woman, but I've been waiting and waiting for your call. And she just keeps repeating like her lines from earlier in the movie. Which is, it, it like reminded me of like a broken Chatty Cathy doll. It pulled the string and it yeah. just keeps saying the lines. You know, she's so psychotic that it's like practiced lines. And she was just saying this because that was the right thing to say to keep luring him in. And, you know, now she's really messed up. <laughs> Yeah. Shigaharu has a voiceover at the end about how we all have to carry on in the face of difficulties in our lives. <laughs> like losing feet and like yes, needles in your body. And then it ends with a shot of Asami as a little girl tying up her ballet slippers. Probably the last time she was actually happy. And that's where the movie ends. <laughs> Now, I, I, w- first of all, two things. One, there was a very distinct lack of music throughout this movie. Uh, you know, we talk about the music in a lot of the movies. This one did not have hardly any music until like You're near right. the end. If it wasn't it was in the background, yeah, it wasn't there. Yeah. So, like at the bar, so it's there's interesting music. Because, right. Yeah, it's interesting because we talk a lot about how music can help set the tone and the mood. And this totally went on what you were seeing as setting the whole mood for the, the whole film. Um, the other thing I noticed was our season one opener with martyrs where we watched that and it was very horrific and some very psychotic things. But we said, if you look at it from the viewpoint of the, the group, 
you almost understand and appreciate what they're doing. It's still horrific. You still don't want to do it and you feel terrible about it. And, you know, that's what makes that movie so great. You know, watching it, the feelings it evokes. I don't really feel anything for her. You know, she's really psychotic. I mean, she may have been driven that way, but I don't have any feeling on her side of it like mm-hmm. I did with Martyrs. That's funny because, uh, again, this might not at all. Somebody has at one point in time speculated that uh, Miike, this movie was like a warning from him. Like, hey, all of you guys in Japan who think you're hot shit, this can happen to you. This is this is what you're opening yourself up to. See, he should have let me watch this movie long ago. <laughs> you should have seen it in 99 when it came out. That's right. Um, but again, you know, it, it speaks different things to different people. And, and to me, I saw this as Asami was the personification of all of the women who had just been objectified and used and cast away by the Japanese patriarchy for, you know, centuries. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and and so while I hadn't given any supernatural thought, you know, element to it until you mentioned it, you know, I saw her as representing that, but now I'm thinking like maybe she didn't just represent it. Maybe she was that personified and the whole thing was like this driven mm-hmm. thing to give voice to like an oppressed people who don't have, you know, voice. And I'm not saying that women in Japan are oppressed. I'm just saying, you know, it, it was a very patriarchal society for a very, very long time. And so right. that's how I saw it. And, and so like you, I didn't necessarily connect with her right but i'm not part of that marginalized group either true very true or that culture right and, yeah, and i so, can definitely agree with that that's why that's one of the reasons i think this movie is so amazing is you could show it to 100 people and 100 people are going to walk away with something different when they you know when yeah. they're done watching it yeah this movie definitely wasn't made for your big uh, popcorn eating blockbuster movie going people. Uh, This is one of those, like we've said before, you would see sitting in a a film critic film learning one-on-one class in college uh, and discussing it or uh, a a beatnik art group that gets together to watch art films or something because you could interpret it like, like you said, several different ways and get several different feelings out of it uh, depending on, your your feelings and background and who you're with and everything. And and I think um with this case, and I felt bad that we didn't say this with the innocence, because I felt like we should have said this with the innocence. The innocence is not a movie for kids who are under the age of eighteen. And not because of the content. Oh, right. It's because you guys won't appreciate it. And I think audition is very similar to that. If yeah, you're absolutely. if you're if you're young and you want to you know I, I would say martyrs isn't for people under 18, but it's not because they wouldn't get into it. It's because of, you know, the subject matter and how it's depicted, you know, it's, it's a crazy, heady, mature film. Um, this, on the other hand, you've got a lot to slog through to get to the, the reward at the end. And for me, I didn't mind it. It, 
that's what made the reward so rewarding. If I was just sitting down, I wanted to watch a horror movie like we did the other night. Let's watch mm-hmm. a bunch of horror movies. If this would have been one of them, I probably would have been like, eh, probably could have had something better to put into that uh, fun Halloween scary spirit. Ooh, let's watch horror movies. This isn't one of those. But sitting nope. down to watch it because I want to do this podcast. I want to analyze it and appreciate and understand it. It's definitely a good choice for that type of setting. Again, this is not one that I'm going to go recommend to most people I know. <laughs> right. And absolutely. It's not because it sucks. It's because it, it, it needs you know, a different viewing. And you will find when we have Halloween movie or movie blast outs, like we do, I'm not going to be bringing these kind of movies to the table because it's not right. going to play for the general audience. I'm not going to be like, Hey Steve, let's watch yeah. martyrs this year. You're like, Oh, okay. Gee, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do right. that. No, uh, she'll walk out of the room. I, <laughs> Yeah, the houses October built was probably as weird and esoteric as I'm going to get. So, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, we watched Paranormal Activity yesterday because Jason wanted to, um, and he uh, wouldn't go to sleep last night and left every light on downstairs when he did. <laughs> what you should have done was wait until like three in the morning and just stood over his bed, <laughs> and then like made a little noise so he, he probably- woke up. I, I I actually would do that. That is something I would do. But this boy is now taller than I am, and he outweighs me. So if he really freaked out before realizing it was me, I don't know what type of pain I could be in. Yeah, realize what was going on. Good point. And his drum sets in his room now, so I could be skewered very easily. Yeah, <laughs> all these jokes that we might have played in our youth, we have to think twice now that we're reaching our dotard ages. Well, yeah, you say that, but honestly, I, I don't think twice very often, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, she's constantly uh, like, how old are you? <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'll, I'll admit that. Uh, so, all right. Now, so next... that was audition. Uh, yes. yes. Our next movie I would bring to a Halloween horror fest. Um, this is Grabbers. It, uh, it's a much lighter fare. Uh, very enjoyable film for me and i hope you're gonna like it too cool all right well then next time grabbers all right